Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, As First Series of January 6 Hearings Ends, Watchdogs Say Trump Must Be Prosecuted. The House January 6th Committee's first series of public hearings came to a close last night with a primetime event featuring fresh evidence that former President Trump gave a green light to the right-wing mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol and ignored pleas to stop the violence. What do these hearings mean? This while Mike Pence seeks to distance himself from Trump as he considers a 2024 presidential run. For insight, let's uh, turn to our first guest. He's an independent journalist and analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on these hearings, and I'm not really so focused on what was presented as I am with are the hearings, do you think they're resonating with the public or are the divisions now in this country such that people are so entrenched in their particular camps that the Democrats who are leading these hearings are really preaching to the converted? I think it's the latter. Totally. I mean, I think the um, I think that the uh, this is a, a, a classic Democratic PR infotainment move, which uh, plays to the uh, to the democratic or a democratic audience, uh, you know, stirs them up, riles them up, uh, fills them with indignation, and not not all undeserved, I might add, uh, but has little effect on the other side of the aisle, uh, where um, people are all too aware it's a very one-sided kind of show trial. Uh, the 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 witness list is heavily biased against Trump. People don't believe it. They believe there are two sides to the story, and only one is being heard. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it's having little effect in changing that lineup. Viewership has fallen off uh, dramatically since the first show. So uh, so it's like you know it's um you know it's it's the case of the walls are closing in yet again. The other thing, Dan, is, and I've read a number of things where, and seen things on on uh, TV where it is apparent that there are those within the Democratic establish, establishment that believe that the January 6th hearings will be of some benefit to them um, in November. And th- two things. Number one, I think that it is, in fact, preaching to the converted so that those who are already excited about they don't like Trump or January 6th are going to watch this and they'll be even more excited about it. But I think two things. Number one it's now in in political years, as it were, like dog years. We're a long time from November. It's, and and since it's mostly, you know, it's not going to affect independence who you really need. And it's so far from November. By the time November comes with all the other things that are looking to happen, I don't think people even remember this. I think it's a, like a total waste from that perspective. I, 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 I agree completely. I mean, yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's what it's uh, it's. Um, uh, 
three, three and a half months till the election. And that is an eternity uh, in American politics. This is, this is the problem with having a, a fixed election cycle, unlike a, a more flexible one in a parliamentary system. I mean, people only remember the last month or two. Um, and so, so therefore, something that happens in, in, in July is ancient history. And, and, and the problem is, I don't think the, these January 6th hearings came up with anything terribly new. There has been no blockbuster, nothing that we didn't really already know uh, before. I mean, even, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson's, you know, uh, comments about Trump uh, uh, grabbing the steering wheel were, were you know, failed. No, the, 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 the Secret Service quickly contradicted her. Uh, and so, therefore, you know, rendered the whole thing a nullity. So, you know, so yes, yeah, some, some portion of the population was impressed. Uh, another portion of the, of, the prop, of the population was unimpressed. And therefore, I think it'll be a wash. It'll be forgotten in a matter of months. So we're hearing that Donald Trump right now is trying to make the decision about whether to run again in 24. Some have said he's already made the decision and we're just waiting uh, for the announcement to be made. This while Mike Pence is now trying to find some backbone and trying to distance himself from Donald Trump. Does that indicate anything to you? I don't think I don't think Pence is a few, has a future politically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he's he'll be a I think Ron DeSantis may to a degree. I think that that Pence does not. He has a very limited appeal. His religious fundamentalism is a turnoff, uh, is a liability. Uh, and hypocritical. Profoundly. I, I call him, he's a so-called Christian uh, because he, he's a hypocrite. Yes, but he's also somebody who, who argues against Darwin. And, and I don't care. I don't care how many crazy creationists there are out there. That's not going to wash with the great majority of the, of the American electorate. So, you know, so... So therefore, I see I see Pence as as his options. His future is really is really limited. DeSantis may be in in better shape. I still, but my money is still on Trump. I think Trump still is going to be a very strong candidate. I could be wrong, but I that's my impression now. Well, a couple of things. Number one, and that is, look. <clears throat> One thing I remember about 2016 and 2020, a number of Republicans who blasted Trump, oh, he's terrible, he's horrible. Remember Paul Ryan? All of, oh, he's terrible. And when he, when, he, when he started running and got close, they all jumped on the bandwagon. They all said, you know, they talked trash until it came time. That's one thing about the Republicans. When there's a, don't matter who it is, they all came together and they jumped on the Trump bandwagon and they pushed him over the edge. And, and I think a big part of it is this. They understand that he has a very strong and dedicated base within the ranks of the Republican Party. So there are a lot of like what we would call, I guess, establishment, whatever you want to call corporate Republicans like Trump isn't one, but he's good at hiding it. Who say, well, I may not like Trump, but in my district, there are enough people supporting Trump that if I don't, that I'm toast. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, Dan? I, I agree. I agree with you 100. percent I think they have, I, th- I think that Trump has two great advantages. Uh, one is foreign policy. I think his uh, his anti-NATO stance resonates with a good deal of the population. A lot of people like it. Uh, they don't like the uh, the neocons 
uh, foreign policy is being being pursued by by Biden and would undoubtedly be pursued by any other Democrat and Ron DeSantis as well. So Trump's anti-NATO stance, I think, is is a actually helps him politically. Uh, and then secondly, the reason people like Trump is that all the Democrats hate, <laughs> despise, loathe Trump. And, and, and they gave him a, a super rough ride during his first term. So Republicans, you know, many Republicans are thirsting for revenge. And the only way to really get it is by reelecting Trump. Two things. One, you said that you think that Donald Trump would be a very strong candidate. I'm going to put on my political scientist hat and say, I think we could find there would be an inverse statistical relationship between the strength of Donald Trump as a candidate and the weakness of every other Democrat that he would run against because they got <laughs> nothing. They got, they got negative nothing. And the people, like, again, like the Bernie Sanders type, or the people who are at least in real moderate, the people who would get some traction. That's implicit in what I was. They're going to crush them. That's implicit in what oh, yeah, I was. Yeah. What I was okay. what I, you're absolutely right. The people that would run and win, such as a Bernie Sanders, are folks that the Democrats would never nominate. That, yeah, right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Drilling a little further into Garland's point, when you, when you listen to Mitch McConnell, can't stand Donald Trump. Uh, we don't know where Lindsey Graham. You can't trust Lindsey Graham. But he'll, for but, but he'll go along oh, with he'll, him. He'll he, jump he, on the— He'd marry Donald Trump yeah, if he could. Exactly. So when you look at Democratic Party leadership, they can't seem to stomach Donald Trump. I'm wondering if Mike Pence, being on the Democratic Party leadership side, does that indicate anything about a possible rift within the party? You mean like uh, with, with me, like 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 the the Democrats might make room on their ticket for no no for no Mike Pence no 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 no, no. That, <laughs> that well who knows what they will do if Nancy Pelosi can go to Taiwan anything can happen no what I'm saying is that that Mike Pence being on the conservative leadership side of the Republican Party and we know that Mitch McConnell can't stand Donald Trump. Does this show does 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 Pence now talking about a possible run? Does this show that there's a, a that there's a, a a brewing fight internal debate within the Republican hierarchy? I, I there, there may be, but I don't see it going anywhere. Because of what Garland really, said. I, because of what Garland said, right. I mean, I think okay. I think Trump has got a huge appeal uh, to the uh, to to a, a, a to his base, a major to his to his base, which mm -hmm. comprises you know a, a huge portion of the Republican Party's rank and file. Uh, and I don't think, see Pence, I don't see Mitch McConnell, I don't see DeSantis either mm -hmm. really making a dent in that. Gotcha. Um, and and I just I just can't see it. And uh, and and certainly, I mean, if it's if it's Kamala Harris up against Trump in twenty twenty four, I mean, Oof. I mean, it'll be it'll be it'll be sad. That'll be worse um, than Hillary, that'll be worse than Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, so I so I, I still favor Trump. I still think Trump is the uh, is has the has the edge here. And and see, the Democrats for the last since two thousand sixteen essentially thought they would win. By running down Trump, mm -hmm. but when they when they got into power, 
their performance has been so abysmal as to completely undercut whatever case they may have made. They can't I mean, deliver. People, they can't deliver. People despise Biden. And they despise Kamala Harris even more. I mean, Biden is just pathetic in every respect. He's personally sickly. He's aged. I mean, I don't even know if he'll even survive to 2024. I mean, uh, and, um, and, and he's, 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 he's dumb. He's a poorly spoken. Um, uh, he, he and those he, are his good points. <laughs> you really do like him. <laughs> and I, I, I just I, I think that people are so appalled by the man who who the Democrats chose to lead their ticket and who was personally anointed by Barack Obama. By the way, I mean I think people are so appalled by this that I I think that the the Democrats are just dead ducks. Egon, how about a how how about a Kamala Harris Hillary Clinton? Team? Oh Lord. <laughs> Well, how about this, Dan? Here's the other part of it. There is the issue of Joe Biden as the, a person, and he's been abysmal. But here's the other part. The, the Democrats under Joe Biden became the party that Donald Trump defeated. Here's what I mean. Donald Trump defeated, now granted, a lot of it was a fraud, but he defeated the Jeb Bushes and the, the neocon George Bush, George W. Bush version of the party. He defeated them, right? The Democrats went in and brought in Liz Cheney. I mean, as their heroes, as their advisors, et cetera, Liz Cheney, Bill Crystal, Max Boot. Henry Kissinger. In, yeah. Well, I wish they would listen to Kissinger now. But <laughs> they brought in the um, literally at the convention in, 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 in 2020, they had the exact same Republican speak that spoke at the 2006 uh, Republican. Uh, Republican convention. So the, the Democrats became the Republican party. Party that Donald Trump defeated, Dan. Uh, yes, yes, and I and I think that 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 the that the result is wishy washy, unpersuasive, uh, um, and self defeating because it's, it's too broad a tent. It's it's just you know it's, it's not this does not pack any kind of powerful punch, and it's headed by by Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris, oh, good. who together personify the complete emptiness of that approach uh, you know and, and then the, you know there's the economy there's the war which is not going to get any better by november um you know and there's the prospect of war with china oh, and you know I mean, I mean god forbid that happens yeah that's i think happen. that's called the end of the world as we yeah, know precisely it. precisely i mean you know and and then you know that's that that um that that nancy pelosi insists on traveling to taiwan thereby engaging in a needlessly and dangerously provocative act towards China and that and that Biden doesn't know what to do. I mean, just sums it all up. They are indecisive, directionless, um, just are lost. And, and the American people sense that they want Americans want politicians. Everyone does. Every voter wants a politician with answers. They don't want politicians who who dither, who can't make up their mind, who are weak, indecisive, et cetera. Speaking about the war, Russia-Ukraine war, this is from Middle East Eye, Kiev confirms plans to reopen Black Sea ports under UN deal. 
Uh, Zelensky confirmed Turkey's announcement that Kiev will sign a deal with Russia today to reopen its ports on the Black Sea as food prices continue to grow because of the war. Zelensky said yesterday that the Black Sea ports could soon be reopened under a U.N. deal following an announcement in Turkey. Your thoughts, Daniel Lazar, does the fact that they're reaching this agreement indicate anything to you about movement in the broader scale? The answer is no. I mean, I, I think this, this whole food crisis has been, has been a phony one from the beginning uh, for a number of reasons. Number one is that there's an inflation. Inflation is not caused by the war. Inflation is aggravated by the war, mm-hmm. but not caused by it. And so the, 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 the rise, the, the, the rise in, in, in grain prices and the the shortages that we've seen there, they, that, that process went, you know, went into motion prior to February 24th. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, we know that it was Ukraine that was, that was mining the harbors mm-hmm. in, the, in the Black Sea, presenting, uh, preventing shipment of grain, and also uh, NATO and the European Union which blocked the most the, the the most logical alternative route, which is a rail route via Belarus. That's the cheapest, simplest, most logical solution. But the uh, but the the uh, the NATO and, and the EU said no because that would mean essentially relaxing sanctions, which apply to Belarus as much as they apply to Russia. So um, so so this whole this whole. Supposedly, this grain embargo imposed by Russia really is imposed by by the Ukraine and then uh, and the West. Uh, number one and number two, the economic forces have been in effect for a long okay. time. All that said, I'm I'm very happy to see the grain flow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, certainly that that that's good news. I mean, people need grain. I'm glad to see the grain. I'm glad to see the grain flowing to the portions of the world that mm-hmm. are really desperate for it. And, uh, and I hope the agreement holds. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time, especially today. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Jobless claims rise again in another sign that the labor market is cooling. Initial claims totaled 251,000 for the week ending July 16th, which was up 7,000 from the week before and above the 240,000 Dow Jones estimate. That was the highest weekly level since mid-November. Also, the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index fell to a reading of negative 12.3 and produced the lowest employment reading since May of last year. What do these indicators signal? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you, sir. 
So initial claims up 7,000 from the week before. Again, the highest weekly level since mid-November. Is this a seasonal issue or is it an indicator that we need to be discussing recession? And then also the Philadelphia Fed manufacturing index fell to a reading of negative 12.3. And for those who don't know, the Philadelphia Fed manufacturing index is a regional Federal Reserve Bank index of the Philadelphia region. And it measures changes in business growth. So what are these numbers telling you? Well, these numbers are certainly telling me that the economy is cooling. Um, I I think it's been uh, kind of bumping along for a while, Uh, even though the unemployment rate is 3.6%. We talked about before about that being a, a misleading figure. But this, this increase of uh, 7,000 in terms of initial claims, at, at this point, I, I, there would, this would not be a seasonal adjustment. Uh, we're in the summer. We're in the middle of the summer. And uh, let's say summer jobs would, would, would go away at the end of the summer. Uh, this is too soon for a seasonal adjustment. So I think this is a, uh, an indication of, of slowing down in the economy. The economy is doing exactly what the Fed wants it to do. Um, and it's increasing interest rates is, is slowing down the economy. But the, the problem is it's not only slowing down demand, it's also slowing down production, as the manufacturing index indicates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're slowing down both supply and demand. There's no reason for the prices of things to, to fall. And so uh, business is slowing down, but, but uh, inflation is not slowing down yet. Uh, and uh, so we will end up uh, with, of course, higher, uh, higher unemployment and, um, and also high interest rates. Although we've indicated before that the, uh, the, you know, the unemployment rate at 3.6 cents, uh, 3.6% is misleading because uh, if you've worked uh, and made a dollar in the last two weeks, if you worked for Uber and made a few bucks, you are not considered unemployed, even though you would like to have a full-time job. And so that 3.6% hides a lot of underemployment that's going on. Can you elaborate a little bit on this federal Philadelphia Federal Index? Again, it is a uh, it's a it's a regional so it index so it covers Pennsylvania, New York, uh, I think New Jersey, the Delaware and Delaware regions, uh, where that particular where the Philadelphia Fed covers. Uh, so so oh, so New York. I don't think New York is 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 in there. But um, what elaborate a little bit on the impact that the interest rates are having, and when the index is at zero, or when the index is above zero, that indicates growth. So what does a negative twelve point three mean? How how important or how significant? of a drop is a negative 12.3 on the scale. That's considerably significant since the normal thing for, for uh, these indexes to do is to go up, maybe mm-hmm. not a lot, uh, but, but, but when you have a decline in manufacturing and in a region, we're not talking about a, a small city, we're talking about a large part of the country uh, that is probably reflective of other parts of the country and this drop of 12, uh, almost 12.5%. 
uh, is significant. Manufacturing is slowing down. That also, of course, means that people are being laid off. And uh, so supply is going down. Uh, and uh, if supply is decreasing, that itself is an increase in inflation. So the fact that the, the economy is, is responding with a decline in supply faster than apparently it responding with a decline in demand indicates that inflation is going to continue to go up for a while. And I would also think when you look at this particular region that encompasses Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, I'm thinking about cities such as Pittsburgh. I'm thinking of of Philadelphia uh, in terms of New Jersey. I'm thinking of the Camden area where there used to be significant manufacturing in the United States. And now most of the doors and windows on those factories have shuttered. Correct. Uh, they, you know, we're not talking about any more manufacturing um, regions that are manufacturing hubs, but but what little manufacturing is going on there is is um, declining. I, you know, I, I suppose uh, uh, what may happen if there's a recovery in those areas of manufacturing is what has happened in the past. Uh, those those factories have 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 opened elsewhere. That is, they've moved out of the country. Uh, as opposed to opening uh, back up in Philadelphia region or, or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So manufacturing, you know, they're, they're going to go, manufacturers are going to go where the cheap labor is as opposed to reopening uh, plants that were sh- shut down. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a trend that has been going on, this, this crisis in the economy, both employment and in, uh, in, um, uh, coming unemployment and, and current inflation is going to exacerbate that. So as we listen to politicians on the campaign trail, particularly, I just remember particularly Joe Biden talking about bringing manufacturing back. Donald Trump talked about bringing manufacturing back. That's one of the taglines. If we if we get a Mike Pence, I'm sure he's going to talk about bringing manufacturing back. A negative 12.3 percent tells me that's not happening. Well, it, it could happen if if um, uh, labor was willing to uh, to to uh, to work for the same kind of wages that uh, you know, workers <laughs> the, in, in China are working for, right? China and Vietnam, you know, Bangladesh. Yes, and and in one way, uh, in a in a very macro political economy sense. Um, slowdowns and recoveries, uh, recessions in, in economies are actually good for uh, for Wall Street uh, because it uh, portends that workers, if they come back to work, will work for less, and therefore profits will be higher. Uh, and so, and so, even in the situation where where um, in in the short term manufacturing is shut down. In the long term, it, it quote disciplines workers to take less to let take less uh, pay, and uh, in in some sense, some have argued that that's a a long term strategy for manufacturing for mm-hmm. for Wall Street in general, uh, manufacturing being just one sector, and and so yeah, those 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 jobs come back, 
if if uh, persons are willing to work for um, a much much lower wage. Um, I, I want to ask you about this. The Fed's expected to um, hike, uh, hike uh, uh, rates by seventy five basic points next week. Now the reality is. That's going to flop the economy even more, and it just certainly points to the argument that a lot of people are making, that they are intentionally—that there's a number of reasons. We could get into all of the reasons. Some have to do with the dollar. Some has to do with, as you said, just making a higher profit. But that their intent now is to tank the economy for whatever reason, because if we're slowing up now, when you hike things by 75 basis points, houses and cars and things are not going to get bought, and uh, things are going to kind of go down the tube. Right, and and there's also there's even even some rumors that it may be as much as one percent, one hundred basis points. Um, you know that, that that would be that would be I uh, you know not sure, but I think it might be one of the largest, certainly largest in history. Uh, the Fed is acknowledging by by doing these high um, uh, interest rate increases that what it has been doing is not working. And uh, it, it's, it's not likely to work because this is not a demand-driven um, uh, inflation. It's a supply-driven inflation. Some economists uh, had started to blame it on, uh, on, on wage increases, that workers are asking for so much, employers have to then increase the price of their product to pay those wages. But we've seen wages stagnating and, in fact, declining in the, in the, in this period, and so they, they they can no longer blame it on 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 wage wage increase. Uh, there also, of course, is is the a part of the analysis is the windfall profit that these prices in many goods like oil and other goods uh, are being inflated well beyond the cost of the producers of these products, uh, giving them an opportunity to take profit now. So so I guess in this scenario, they can take extra profit now. And then when the economy collapses, uh, they can take extra profit from high unemployment later. Uh, it, it seems as if the, uh, the 1% always wins. Common Dreams has a piece, U.S. regulators urged to block Amazon's terrifying purchase of one medical. One antitrust campaigner said the government should swiftly establish a basic set of rules to protect every corner of America's health industry from the power of the manipulation platforms. Uh, your thoughts on this? When I read this, this to me was frightening. Yes, um, you know, One Medical, which is a, essentially a tele, telehealth uh, organization. Um, uh, Amazon is wanting to purchase it. And, and what that does, that purchase course does, is give Amazon access to more information. Mm-hmm. And we're not just talking about the kind of information that you get from your cell phone, you know, by keeping track of uh, my GPS. We're talking about health information. Uh, we're talking about health information that can be uh, used to um, determine insurance rates, and, and other kinds of aspects that can, can, can be used to determine whether someone is wor- worthy of credit or not. And, and so to give a, an Amazon, which is an information magnet, access to um, sensitive health information is, is very much frightening. I mean, there's, a, there's also, of course, a concentration of ownership. This is just one entity that, that Amazon wants to buy, but I, I would imagine that uh, once it gets into the health uh, 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 treatment uh, area, it will want to expand that as well. In addition, uh, telehealth is, uh, quote, less expensive than regular medical health, and so we might see a lot of um, 
a lot of downturning for hospital visits and clinic visits uh, in, in urban areas and in rural areas as we get to this telehealth, which, um, which is less expensive, but, but certainly not as effective as actual, actual visits to, to a doctor. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose that there are persons who would, who would rather have a private entity like a Jeff Bezos uh, have their health informa- information than, quote, the U.S. government, uh, that, that mantra is, is going around. But, of course, there are no limits on what a, a, a private person can do with your, that information. Uh, the government at least has, has some limits. Um, I also imagine that with the current uh, Dobbs decision and the abortion struggle that is renewing, that a lot of the pushback to uh, private corporations having that kind of health information will come from those who are who are uh, uh, pro-life, excuse me, from from pro pro pro-abortion, uh, and and uh, because uh, you know if, if if Amazon or Google or any of these social media platforms have your health information and your not only is not current health, it's also history of health information, then uh, that that opens them up for persons up for targeting for for uh, you know criminal criminal charges if they uh, should have had an abortion in a place where it would be legal. Two things quickly. One, in terms of telehealth, uh, I think it was a, a month or so ago, there were stories that insurance providers and I think even Medicare was cutting back on re- on on reimbursing physicians with with telemedicine practices so the government in in what they consider now to be kind of a post covid era even though we're still in the midst of covid that they're saying that telemedicine practices aren't as necessary as they were. And the other thing I'll throw in as it relates to Jeff Bezos and privacy, you you talked about people being concerned about the government having your health information. Well, with the with the DOD contracts, the 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 cloud contracts that Bezos has with Amazon, the 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 wall between the two has gotten a lot thinner. You're, you're correct. You're, you're, you're bringing up a, an important point. You know, there's kind of an old um, uh, scenario that happens in, in um, uh, uh, detective movies that uh, if the detectives can't get the information because it would be against the law, they can get it from a private citizen and, and uh, not break the law. So under that circumstance, even if it's uh, still against the law for the government to pry into your personal records, uh, if it's not against the law for Bezos to do so because his business requires it and they have that link to, to the government, the government can't get that information anyway. You know, in the American Spectator article, how did, Amer- how did Democrats become so out of touch with the American people? Either they have no clue how bad their policies are or they just don't care. My, and here's the way I look at it. I don't think the Democrats have become out of touch with the American people. I think the government as a whole is now so owned and manipulated by big corporations and power, et cetera, that the American people don't, we just, we have an illusion of democracy. It's not bottom-up politics anymore. It's got, we've got uh, 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 top-down politics. And okay, the Democrats are in power now and they're not doing anything we want. Soon the Republicans will be in power and they won't do anything we want. Your thoughts, Dr. Uh, Tawhid? 
No, no, I think money money absolutely drives this process. Uh, it is the donors to both the Democrats and the Republicans who which who overlap considerably, uh, who get their agendas uh, uh, handled. And uh, you know, at least one thing uh, the, the Republicans uh, are uh, you know pro capitalist uh, money grubbers, and they uh, are that's the story they're sticking <laughs> to. They have no apology with that. You know, while the Democrats are pretending to be for uh, working people, and uh, they're still like the Republicans doing work for their for their for their donors. And so, uh, I, I found this article interesting from uh, you know uh, this conservative uh, organization, American Spectator, mm-hmm. because they're saying that uh, that the Biden administration is out of touch mm-hmm. because it's, it has climate change in hysteria. It's insisting that climate change is a big deal, and that's where his focus is. I, I don't know where that focus, I don't know who's seeing that. <laughs> you know, if, if there's hysteria in the Biden administration over climate, climate change, I suppose it's the kind of hysteria you get with, from a, you know, a, a 78-year-old man on Valium. Because because climate change activists are angry at Biden because he didn't declare a climate change national emergency. Well, he's not doing anything about it. You know what I mean? That's the thing, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Tahir. They're mad because he's mentioning climate change, but he ain't actually doing a thing. Well, he's asking Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. And, and, <laughs> and, and also they talk about uh, energy policy. Is, is an example of Democrats being out of touch. They say Biden still continues to deny new drilling permits in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico. The public does not want their their waterways polluted, nor do they want the, uh, the pristine Alaskan landscape to be dotted with oil spills. So Yes, yes. And, and if the Democrats were independent as opposed to working for the same donors that the Republican Party when a conservative organization says that uh, climate change uh, hysteria is a problem, the Democrats would say we'll own that and we are going to become more hysterical. But 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 their donors, uh, their fossil fuel donors, don't want them to do that. So they say, and uh, you know, you get the narrative on one side for and against climate change, but you get nothing done uh, because the donors don't want it. And so I, I found this article very interesting mm-hmm. in terms of how it's trying to twist the Democrats into essentially doing nothing. Correct, correct. And all the things that the article, if you look at the other side of the argument, the things that the article is implicitly advocating for are big big business issues, big oil issues, and the types of things that have contributed to climate change, and they are uh, results that the public really doesn't want. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times has a George Koo piece entitled, Sputnik Moment Isn't What It Used to Be. 
George writes, when China successfully tested a hypersonic weapon system in October of 2021, General Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs, said this was very close to a Sputnik moment. Well, what has been the U.S. response to the challenge? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J. No, as always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So George talks about the first Sputnik moment from 1957 when the Soviet Union surprised Washington and launched the first man-made satellite called Sputnik 1. And the U.S. response to that, which was a very, very aggressive technological response. And he compares that with where we are today. Your thoughts, K.J. No. Well, I think uh, George is right, but I disagree with him on some uh, a few points. The fact is that Sputnik was a galvanizing moment for the West because it kind of was this frontal shock to uh, U.S. exceptionalism. The U.S. believed that it was the most advanced culture system uh, and educational system. And when the Russians beat uh, the U.S., into space. This created an extraordinary shock, uh, and it resulted in you know, massive changes in the educational system, in the economic system, in the procurement system, and the military-industrial system. Now, it, 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 resulted, it resulted in the creation of NASA. I think uh, Eisenhower, that's what motivated yes, Eisenhower. To... Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yes, absolutely. So it, it fundamentally shifted the landscape around science development, science research, and science education. Uh, what it, uh, but what, uh, what I think some people fail to understand uh, is that it also, it kind of gutted uh, U.S. educational system because education was moving in a very progressive direction uh, up until that time. You know, the John Dewey's ideas and the notions of kind of, uh, you know, a humane progressive education were very important. And all of that was essentially tossed out the window and turned back, uh, and the clock was turned back into a system that was very competitive and selects people for mm. their expertise rather than develops them. Mm. And so we're seeing the you know decades-long effect of that. And then the the other aspect of uh, the educational system is most people don't understand that the U.S. educational system is largely dependent on a massive extraction of uh, cognitive capacity from the periphery or the global south. You know, this is why, uh, you know, the Hungarians built the uh, atomic bomb for the U.S. You know, the Russians built the American art system and the engineers from China and India are are building the current uh, system, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley. And so there's a continual brain drain, or what I refer to as cognitive extraction. It's just more of the same type of resource extraction. When you stop doing that, or when your country is no longer capable of doing that, then that creates uh, you know, significant obstacles to competing on the global stage with Russia or with China. And so George's article is a good one, and he's saying that there was a lack of response to the second Sputnik moment. But in a, in a certain sense, the U.S. had already gutted out its capacity to have an equivalent response. Uh, and now it's, you know, running on fumes. 
And uh, it's not simply a matter of research or, or will. It's also a matter of, of sheer, you know, eating your seed corn for decades, uh, you know, in the educational system and not having the capacity to extract the same kind of cognitive capacities, cognitive resources from the periphery. I think there's another factor that you have to take into account now, and that is the fact that the U.S. system now praise, I put it like this, it preys on its students. So rather than say, we've got to make our, you know, we've got to graduate STEM students, they've got to be quality, technical, technically uh, uh, efficient people that know how to do these things, and they've got to be ready for the big, r- real world. The focus is, how can Wall Street make a fortune off of these people? So instead, you put them in, you run them through college, and at the end of college, you have, uh, uh, and, and I'm sure you know about this now, the credit card companies go to the campuses and say, hey, kids, you should get these credit cards and max them out. And then, of course, they get out, they, they get so they get out of college. And rather than be ready for this great technical field, you know, to move forward in the technical field, they've got two hundred thousand dollars in student loans. They got another twenty five thousand dollars in maxed out credit cards. And now they are the victims of our society rather than being able to be able participants to move us forward technologically. And to your point, Garland, they are privatizing the public school system with charter schools. Yep. Uh, they, they, so they're not properly funding, particularly in urban areas, they're not properly funding the school systems. They are extracting the tax dollars out of the school systems and putting and selecting the best students out of those systems, putting them in charter schools and, and uh, leaving the remainder to rot. KJ. You're absolutely correct. Both of you are absolutely correct. Essentially, the neoliberal system has a predatory approach to all of its citizens, but in this specific situation, towards its students. That is because the neoliberal educational system doesn't have education as its goal. It has profits as its goal, and the students are simply instruments Mm -hmm. for extracting profit. What happens to them is completely, you know, by, you know, it's, it's an externality. And so it cannibalizes, the U.S. is cannibalizing itself, and it's cannibalizing its most important, quote unquote, investment, its human capital. Uh, and as a result of that, you see, as you point out, privatization of school, predatory loans, a, a predatory educational system. And I should point out that the national, uh, the, the college loans were actually uh, created by the National Defense Education Act, which was a result of the Sputnik uh, moment. And so that, again, is, you know, kind of the long-term karma that came out. What I pointed out was that the Sputnik moment is not really what you think it was. It was really the beginning of a hollowing out of the U.S. system. Uh, and, And now they don't have they don't have it's uh, the kind of internal cognitive capital that they should have been cultivating. And at the same time, they don't have the extraction from the periphery that is, you know, the Hungarians, the Russians, the Eastern Europeans, the Chinese, the Indians. Well, the Indians, they still have, but no longer the Chinese. Uh, and at the same time, you know, a good chunk of the best minds in the U.S. in, you know, math and technology have been wasting their intellects in finance where they created high-energy vertical particles of profit. 
And the result of this was the 2008 meltdown of capitalism. So it's not working. We hadn't sent this to you, but I know you are aware of it. And and we should have sent this to you because your perspective on this will be invaluable. Biden says the military uh, says a Pelosi-Taiwan trip is not a good idea. Joe Biden said on Wednesday that U.S. military officials believe it's not a good idea for Pelosi to visit Taiwan and then also said he doesn't know what the status of the trip is. KJ, this speaks volumes to to Garland and I, if I may speak on your behalf, sir, uh, on a a number of levels. The primary level being Joe Biden, A, has no clue and B, has no power because he should have called Nancy into his office and said, you're not going. And it never should have hit the hit the hit the hit the hit the newspapers. Yes. uh, You know, to say that it is not. A good idea is kind of like the understatement of the year, right? <laughs> now, you know, there are three ways to see this. One is, is it that um, Biden is no longer in control of things and, you know, his party members and his uh, whip get to do whatever they want to? Or is it really a schizophrenic foreign policy? Or Is it a good cop, bad cop routine where they switch good cop, bad cop, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, actions uh, and and continue to salami slice? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It sends two messages. One is that the U.S. is not a responsible partner in foreign affairs, that you do not have somebody responsible that you can negotiate dialogue with. Uh, And the second thing is it sends the message, whether she goes or not, it simply sends the message that the U.S. is no longer respecting the one China principle, and that is deadly for U.S. and China relations. Well, the only thing that I would disagree with you is you said it sends the message that he's no longer in control, which implies that at some point he was in control. I think it—but, you know, was something that we talk about a lot, and that is there are warring factions. You know, when you get a— uh, a, 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 a an environment where this particular government or this particular company or whatever it is, where there's a group of leaders and that group is collapsing and coming unglued, you start to get warring factions. And we see that in Ukraine. We've seen that for years. And I think that may be what we're looking at now, where you've got certain neocons whispering in Nancy Pelosi's ear. Hey, Tony Blinken. Exactly. Hey, Nancy, why don't you take a trip over to Taiwan and say hi? They don't even tell Joe Biden because he don't know what's going on. And then the military comes in and says, whoa, this is World War Three, dude. We are not even ready for this. And Joe Biden's kind of like, I don't really know what's going on. The military said don't they don't like it. Nancy never told me. And you just have warring factions and a completely broken system. And And let me just quickly add to that, because one would think that this is a diplomacy fight with the militarism fight. And, and so in, in the flip on it is your diplomats are your warmongers and your warmongers <laughs> now seem to be your diplomats. KJ. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, the, this uh, generation of neocon CNAS derived diplomats are all chicken hawks. They have no experience of battle. They have never even been in basic training. And so for them to strut and fret and preen themselves and to assert military, you know, uh, supremacy and dominance, you know, this is the kind of 
Ivy League poisoned, uh, you know, mind rot that brought us, you know, the catastrophe of the Vietnam War and the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and every war since. It's more of the same. And so, yes, I agree. There's uh, inversion. It's a world upside down. The diplomats want war. The warriors uh, want peace or at least negotiation. But at the same time, I say it's also uh, more of, you know, it's the confusion of a system that doesn't know whether it wants to break or accelerate and ends up doing both at the same time. And the result of that is just damage, right? You put on your brake and accelerate at the same time. There's nothing good that's going to come out of it, regardless of what happens. And so uh, Nancy Pelosi is part of this faction that used to be called the Blue Team in the 1990s. They were the China bashers, the panda sluggers, and they collaborated with the neocons. And then they came together at CNAV. And these are the ones who believe not simply that they want war, but the U.S. can have war and defeat China in a war, as well as according to some of them, have an ambidextrous war, that is, take on China and Russia at the same time. Now, Biden was not originally part of this blue team, and he was opposed to some of their ideas. But he made the monumental mistake of bringing in wholesale the entire, uh, essentially, the legacy of the blue team through CNAF into his uh, top policymaking positions in, in foreign policy. And so that lets us know that either... You know, that, you know, that, that Biden is not in control, not simply of his own team, but not in control of his own cognitive faculties. And that is extraordinarily dangerous. But I would agree there are factions, but I would say there is one faction which is dominant, which is the suicidal, necrotic, uh, uh, necropolitical CMAS team that is moving towards confrontation with China and believes in one form or another that they can win a kinetic engagement. Uh, very, very dangerous. And, and uh, you know, we are, you know, we have, you know, every day I, I, I pray and hope that, you know, that, you know, saner minds will prevail. Chinese chip maker overcomes U.S. sanctions. This is an RT story SMIC's breakthrough puts the company's semiconductors in the same league as Samsung and Taiwan's TSMC. Uh, China's top chip producer has quietly produced chips to the highest Western standards despite U.S. sanctions specifically aimed at hampering its development of such technology. And this is uh, according to a report confirmed by Bloomberg, of all people. So, uh, KJ, your thoughts? Well, it just goes to show you that first, sanctions don't work. Uh, second, that science is not something you can contain and enclose. Uh, technology and science develop. And third, it shows the Chinese have an extraordinary capacity to develop their own indigenous uh, science and technology, in, 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 in this case, in semiconductor uh, fab, uh, fabrication. And so first, you know, it puts the lie that China has stolen its way to the top, right? I mean, this was a complete and total embargo on China. They were not even allowed to buy secondhand lithography machines from the Dutch because some of it contains some U.S. Uh, patents and technology. Didn't make a difference. They went ahead and they built their own internal semiconductor manufacturing capacity. And this 
once again has to do with the you know the fact that the Chinese are really investing, that they churn out what three to four times more engineers and scientists than we do. And in the specific situation here is they uh, invited a lot of Taiwanese semiconductor experts, scientists, engineers to come and work for them. And the Taiwanese went there happily, and they're happily doing their work there and happy to uh, develop China's semiconductor uh, industry. So uh, on multiple levels, on the geoeconomic, on the strategic, and on the scientific technological level, it shows you what an extraordinary miscalculation the U.S. approach was. It also so, so the, the other thing, and that is, you know, look, if you and I have a conflict and, and I feel like you're passing me, there's one of two ways I can do it. I can say I'm going to build myself up and get better or I'm going to drag you down where I am. And it's apparent that that's the plan. The plan is to drag Russia and China down so that they don't move any faster than we do. And that's just not working. Uh, we've got about a minute and a half. You're absolutely correct. I mean, this is the mindset, and I've said this before many times. It's a parasitic system. The parasite wants the host to do the work, and it wants to extract the energy uh, and the value. Uh, When a country tries to break out of that, the parasite sees it as an existential threat. And if it cannot continue to uh, extract, then it will, you know, do whatever it can to drag it down. Essentially, what it does, it, it, it does, it, it always moves in that direction. It's, it's like a cancer. You know, the cancer will destroy the host eventually. But until that happens, uh, it thinks that it's having a high time. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Joe Biden says the military says that Pelosi's planned Taiwan trip, not a good idea. You think? The president said he doesn't know the status of the trip. Well, Joe, you should. President Biden told reporters Wednesday that the U.S. military thinks it's not a good idea for House Speaker Pelosi to visit Taiwan. Media reports on Tuesday said that Pelosi plans to make the trip to Taiwan next month, prompting China to warn it will take strong and resolute measures in response. How concerned should we be that Speaker Pelosi is considering making such a provocative action? And how concerned should we be? that President Biden says he doesn't know the status of the trip. For insight, let's turn to our first panel. It's Friday, folks. That means it's panel time. We're joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, as always, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, Wilmer. We're also joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch and author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So, Jim, let's start with you. There are so many layers to this fiasco. Um, I, I'm, to at a certain degree, at a loss on, on where to start. Why would Nancy Pelosi want to take a trip of this nature when China is very clear that they'll take strong and resolute measures and we know that China doesn't bluff? We've got the military telling Joe Biden this is not a good idea and Joe saying, uh, well, I don't really know what's going on with the trip anyway. I add one more thing. I'm seeing now that um, this is what Pelosi says. I think what the president was saying is maybe the military was afraid our plane would get shot down or something like that from the Chinese. I don't know exactly. <laughs> I've heard it anecdotally, but I haven't heard it from the president. So apparently they never talked about foreign policy. Apparently nobody knows anything. Jim Cavanaugh, <laughs> that that just makes the whole thing know. even worse. I don't know. Jim, go ahead. Is that, is that a, did you just, is that a real quote? From I'm Pelosi? reading it right now from UPI. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't talked to the president. <laughs> it's just World War III. Why would they talk? But here's the thing, Nancy. <laughs> they might shoot you yeah. down. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. Well, there have been a bunch of congressional delegations uh, to Taiwan over the past few years. And the Trump administration set the health secretary. You know, they've been provoking this for a while. There are American forces, soldiers in Taiwan training or, you know, doing something on the ground. What the heck are they doing there? Don't ask we, Joe. We he doesn't know. <laughs> Trump didn't know either. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is. So you, you have the, and, and the idea that, you know, you have the president of the United States getting up and being asked a question about one of the flashpoints of the world between nuclear powers and saying something, you know, my opinion is they didn't want him to say the military told me this, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, he, he probably just blurted out something that he had heard from one of his staff or general, one of the generals and, and oh my gosh, now that. And, you know, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know anything about this trip. And then it's clear that she, that he and Pelosi haven't talked about or coordinated this trip. This is American foreign policy that's being run by a bunch of clowns. And, and, and you have the Chinese saying, this is, again, Russia said it for eight years. Stop doing this stuff. This is really dangerous. We are, There's a limit to this. And the Chinese have been saying, look, you got to... We're not going to put up with this, you know, and the American politicians think they can push this and push this. They sent a ship, a military ship through the Taiwan Strait and back through another strait. They went like a thousand mile voyage to make sure they sent this military vessel in all the disputed waters. So, you know, they're provoking the Chinese and, you know, really just being cocks of the walk and saying, you know, we're going to go. We want we're going to do what we want. We're going to put whatever we want we're going to visit whomever we want. And the Chinese are saying you are entering provocatively dangerous, provocative territory. Nobody pays any attention to it. And they're obviously don't, they don't even coordinate with, the, with each other what they're doing about it. It's so dangerous. We're in a very dangerous world. Steve, and following on to Jim's points, the, it's, it's six ships they've sent through or the same ship six times. I, I'm not sure wh which it is. Uh, so at, I don't know if it's going to be the seventh time or the eighth time or the ninth time or maybe Nancy's right when she tries to fly in, they're going to take a shot at something at some point. I mean, you can only swat the hornet's nest so many times before you get stung. Well, that's true. And I mean, they they flew planes uh, over the median line with, between the Republic of Taiwan and China when Rick Scott went and stopped by 
you know, as governors of Florida do to go to <laughs> Taiwan to meet with the president. Um, and China, you know, was the median line for that. I what, what there's probably a couple of things that are happening here. And one is that Nancy Pelosi is just trying to, to catch some headlines with, uh, oh, I couldn't go to China because the military is afraid I was going to be shot down because now repeating things third hand will uh, will get you, you know, 40 minutes on the news and leading headlines in the January 6th committee because somebody was told something by somebody's college roommate that the president tried to grab a steering wheel or something like that. And now it's you know part of the congressional record and facts. So there's a possibility that that's what Pelosi is trying to do just by passing along second, third hand information that maybe she didn't even get. This is something that Ned Price is talking about, you know, equating to a declassifying briefing in terms of when he goes out and says, oh, yeah, some people told us some stuff about Syria or some people told us some stuff about Ukraine. So uh, now you guys know everything we do, Swerzy's. Or, or I was in a I was in a Chinese restaurant and the waiter told me, therefore, this is China policy. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you've just been part of a, a declassified intel briefing. Pat yourselves on the back. You're special. Uh, but I, when there's no coordination or when there's a perception of no coordination, because I, I know that the functionaries are talking, the, if the, the principles aren't, that's by design. If there's a, a perception of lack of communication, well, that harkens me back to right around the turn of the century when none of the intelligence agencies were talking to each other and none of the people who were on either side of the aisle were talking to each other, and it created the conditions for a, a arguably the massive <clears throat> biggest gap in intelligence and biggest intelligence failure in American history. Uh, Jim, let me let me add this. You know, imagine you're on a ship and you look ahead and you see an iceberg and you, you go to the captain. Hey, captain, what's up with the iceberg? And he goes, I don't know. I haven't talked to the guy in the lookout. I th- I'm not. I don't know. And you go up to the old eagle's nest and you talk to the guy who's looking out for icebergs. Did you tell the captain? I haven't really talked to him, but uh, you're going to hit an iceberg. The ship is not being controlled by anyone, right? It's called the Titanic. Exactly. And this is what we, no matter who you go to in the Biden administration, and I would think the president probably should be informed, the answer is, I don't know. I haven't. Meanwhile, let me throw this in here. Kissinger, of all people, a 99-year-old war criminal, warns Biden on China ties amid Washington's enhanced provocations against Beijing. Consequences would be fatal and unbearable for Biden. Henry Kissinger is now the foreign policy sage. He's now making the Biden. People are now like, man, I sure wish Henry Kissinger was president instead of Biden. You're in pretty bad shape when that's the case, Jim. Kissinger's now to the left of the Democratic <laughs> Party. It's 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 beyond belief almost. I mean, and, and it's a, it chokes you up, not in a tearful way, but in a stomach way to have to say Kissinger is being more reasonable than anybody else in this circumstance. But Kissinger knows, and he says, "We got you, China is a permanent." part of the world. You know, China's permanency talk. This this civilization has been around for a long time. We're not going to push it around. We're not going to treat it even, you know, and, and of course, he's also protecting what, you know, his legacy, which was reopening to China. So, so there's that. But this is the case. China is a 
quarter of the world's population, right? At least. So you're not pushing this around. You know, you can't, and you can't treat it with this nonchalance. Oh, we don't really, we haven't really figured out what we're doing yet, but we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And really from an American citizen's point of view, I mean, they're just hiding the fact as Steve says, there's probably people at the, you know, the ministerial level and the lower ministerial level, the functionaries, the permanent bureaucracy, the permanent government, who are trying to keep things coherent and have a coherent strategy. But you really can't get away from the fact that the leadership, the president of the United States is not competent. You know, they're trying to hide this fact. You know, this is not, you know, it, it, you can be reactionary and, and, and competent. You can be an American imperialist. I mean, but, you know, if you have some – Barack Obama was a competent politician. <laughs> you know, he was an American imperialist, but he knew what was going on. Was, people could talk to him. He could figure it out. He could say the right things and avoid saying the wrong things. But this guy, you know, this is the problem we have. And this is being ignored and deliberately hidden by the American media that we're in a crisis of leadership on top of the real social and political and military and diplomatic crises that are undermining everything that, you know – the imperialist uh, permanent government would like to keep going in the world, but we can't, or or anything that any progressive would like to have established in the world or in the United States, but we can't talk about this absolute vacuity of leadership in the United States, and it's extremely dangerous. Steve, this Global Times piece that Garland was reading from, Kissinger warns Biden on China ties, and it opens, it says, the Joe Biden administration has been testing China's bottom line on bilateral relations and the Chinese mainland's staunch determination to uh, reunify with Taiwan Island with more frequent maritime provocations. I don't know. The, the Biden administration isn't testing China's bottom line because China's bottom line is very clear. And they just said, you keep doing this and our response is going to be asymmetrical and disproportionate. Joe Biden is testing America's bottom line because it's America's one China policy that the Biden administration is now in direct conflict with. Yeah, it's uh, why not? be involved in multiple illegal and proxy wars and cold wars in every possible sphere uh, of the globe. Why not? Because if you're trying to usher in the controlled demolition of the American empire, there's no better way to do it. The From the moment that the U.S. quietly reversed on the State Department website back at the first week of May, their their position on the one China policy, and they removed some very specific language to uh, to make a, a more aggressive stance about Taiwan and about the region. From that moment forward, all China done, all China has done, is upscale. Uh, we are. We're not even prepared to to match rhetoric for rhetoric on this. We're flat out not. And at the same time, we have an entire sphere of the media that is dedicated to drumming up anti-China paranoia 24 hours a day. So it's going to be even harder to convince a good chunk of the population post midterms that taking a very hostile approach and a more aggressive approach to China is just foolish. Here's another interesting article. <clears throat> Moving on to uh, the Middle East. Uh, 
U.S. CIA Director William Burns acknowledged on July 20th that the U.S. intelligence community knew the Iranians had not resumed the weaponization effort that they had underway until 2004 and then suspended. This means that Washington slapped sanctions on Iran with no evidence of Tehran violating the 2015 nuclear accords. We know that this isn't the first time the CIA has said this. But what's interesting about this is, uh, and we'll start with you, Jim, the Neocon 101 is you accuse a country of doing something that they haven't been doing. That way, there's no possible way out for them to to fix it. You just say, hey, Jim, we need you to stop using black magic to turn people into frogs. Well, Jim can't possibly stop doing it because he ain't doing it. And then, well, we've got to sanction you and move forward because we wouldn't want people turned into frogs. Jim. Well, we don't have evidence oh, no. that he's doing <laughs> not doing yeah, that's it. We don't have evidence. Oh, my God, you found me out. <laughs> Ribbit. Yeah. <laughs> Let me say one quick thing about the Chinese thing before we move on, because what's important, we're criticizing the Biden regime, but let's face it, the Republicans are the least as bad, and they're going to run on anti-China, and oh, they yeah. are aggressively anti-Chinese, and they're more dangerous probably in the, the short term, at least, than the, than the, than the Democrats on this. So this. This is not going away, and it's not, not Biden's administration per se. Uh, but in terms of the Iran thing, yeah, we, you know, it's been known, Scott Ritter said this a long time ago. There's been no, the Iranians gave up their nuclear weapons program in 2004. The Ayatollah put out a fatwa against nuclear weapons. There's no evidence that they have a nuclear weapons program. And this is just hoopla. This is hoopla from from Israel, which does have nuclear weapons, which is in violation of the Symington and Glenn amendments. Every dollar of foreign aid that goes to Israel is illegal in American law because the Every president, every administration, and the national intelligence bureaucracies of the United States lie and knowingly lie about Israel for 30 years at least on this. So this is uh, uh, this is driven by Israel. You know, Netanyahu got up 15 times with little cartoons of the bomb being filled up with uranium, whatever the hell it was. And you know, this is this is a campaign against Iran for other things. The JCPOA was a absolutely great way of being everybody knowing that the Iranians would never have a, a nuclear weapon. And they gave that up because they're not interested in the nuclear Iran's nuclear weapon, non-existent nuclear weapons program. They are interested, the Israelis, in militarily in Iran's missile program, which is very dangerous to Israel. They're interested in their political and their economic and political and military support for resistance groups around the region. And that's what this is about. This is about keeping the pressure on Iran and keeping the pressure and escalating the pressure within American political life for an attack on Iran that the Israelis want to do. They want the Americans to do. They want the Americans to go along with them in doing it, in which attack Israel will use nuclear weapons. So this is not an anti-nuclear weapons thing. This is, in fact, in order to protect Israel's nuclear weapons program and in order to weaken Iran and make it susceptible to an attack that's supported at least by the United States and which the United States participates. And it's, you know, nobody should be fooled by this in any way, shape or form. And, you know, Trump, if, if Biden wanted to get back into the JCPOD, all they had to do was do it. But they want something else from Iran and it has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. Steve, one of the things before you respond uh, to the question, I want to add one more thing to it. And that is, I think it's important to always look at the timing of statements such as these. So Joe Biden comes back from his Middle East uh, 
soiree. And now you've got Burns, the head of the CIA, saying uh, they don't have a, we a weapons program and they, and they haven't had one for who knows how long. Uh, while Israel is screaming that we're going to attack Iran and Joe Biden is saying, and we'll back the play if we have to. So as we were talking about in the last segment about factions as related to the Nancy Pelosi trip and factions within the administration, is this another example of there being competing factions within the administration? I, that's, that's certainly possible in Iran as a, a tr you know, a trophy in the neocon foreign policy shelf has, has been the one that got away for the longest amount of time. We've been having to fight a proxy war in Syria, well, an open hot war in Syria, um, but ultimately blaming the Iranians left and right as a result of it and using the Iranians as cover every time Israel wakes up and decides to bomb Damascus in the middle of the night, like they did last night. Um, the When you get right down to it, there's always going to be an element within the the U.S. military industrial complex writ large that has their sights set on Iran. And until you can either whittle that element out, which I don't necessarily see an effective way of doing in the, the short term, um, you've got to be able to, on some level, get people in there who understand this this really is the the end of the road for america you can't go fight a ground war in a country with 88 million people in some of the most hostile terrain on the planet who have everything to lose and everything to gain by making sure you don't go home happy if you go home at all right that's why that's exactly why israel will use nuclear weapons because they can't fight a real ground war there they just have to try and destroy the country, push them back at least 50 years, and uh, there's no other way to do it. Here's another interesting article in antiwar.com. Europe facing major economic crisis from sanctions against Russia. Europe is facing a declining euro, rising inflation, and soaring energy prices. You know, we're starting to see uprisings is the term I'll use because, you know, there's I, when people are like hungry and cold and run, I don't consider it riots. I consider it legitimate uprisings. We're seeing that in Holland. We're seeing that spread. And I don't think that um, I think this is the beginning of it. Wait a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Wait a minute. The, the sanctions were against Russia. <laughs> I thought the sanctions were against Europe. Because Italy's government is falling, Germany's government is falling, France is in trouble, Bojo. I, I thought the United States sanctioned Europe. Go ahead, Jim. I, I, my mistake. All of this time, because when you look at the, re, the results, they're the ones that are suffering. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I referred to this Simon Tisdall article in Garden a couple of days ago, and that's exactly the starting point of his article, you know. Europe is becoming immiserated by by these sanctions. And he's blaming Putin for it, of course. But, you know, a long, cold, calamity-filled European winter of power shortage and turmoil looms. And this is what's happening in Europe. And this is the result of the sanctions regime, uh, which is, you know, again, everyone have to realize this, of course, it got a lot worse. And, and it came to a, a head with the, the sanctions regime uh, after the Russian uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. But the sanctions policy is the policy, is the way the Americans now do 
diplomacy. It's how, how can we, what sanctions can we put on people trying to force them to do what we want? So you've, this has come now to a crashing head and they thought they could get away. They, you know, they, for a long time, the people who were suffering from the sanctions regime were the other countries. It was Venezuela, you know, it's Iran, you know, that wasn't having that big of a negative effect on the United States. But now you try to close off the largest country in the world, a supplier of mass supplier of very important commodities from fertilizer to nickel uh, to oil and gas. And uh oh, you know, we've cut ourselves off. We're the ones who have isolated ourselves. Europe and the United States and the so-called West has isolated itself from the vast sources of material wealth in the world. What are we going to do about that? Oh, what? I don't know. <laughs> you know. And what Simon Tistel said was, oh, there's only one thing to do about it, and that's use our overwhelming military force to defeat Russia in Ukraine right away. And really, you know, that's all they have. They have military power, although good luck trying to defeat Russia in Ukraine. And they have the power of uh, economic blackmail and economic siege. And that economic siege power now is showing, uh-oh, it doesn't really work the way they want it. it it's a boomerang effect. And it's, this is why they're in, a, they're in a bind. They don't want to recognize that they're the ones who created this problem for themselves. And they're the ones who are suffering from the problem themselves. And there's no way they can get out of it without giving something up that they really don't want to give up. And Steve, to add to to the to the point that Garland raised, not only are they dealing with this economic problem, but now they've got in many areas in southern Europe, they have a climate issue with this heat wave that's broiling Europe. Uh, you've got fires, ferocious wildfires in Spain and in France. You've got fires breaking out in Britain. And so not only are the self-imposed economic problems hitting them, but now climate change is, is, is torching them as well. Yeah, and there have been uh, massive, erroneous, counterintuitive farming agricultural uh, policies that have been you know, ushered in and forced upon not just people in the Netherlands and Germany and France. Um, but uh, Sri Lanka as well, they're in the streets. Panama, they're in the streets. That's over fuel and cost of living. But, I mean, it's all sort of relative. Uh, when, when, you're, when your legislation is deliberately destabilizing your own country in the name of some larger, like, global, you know, gl global aspirations, and that comes into direct conflict with previous global partnerships that you've made, the only thing that can happen is the people in your country that are trying to work and breathe and live and stay warm or not suffocate and stay cool suffer. The, it's a, almost a self-imposed sanction. That's how sanction-happy we are, Jim. <laughs> that's, that's how sanction-happy the, the West has gotten is that by by levying this sort of foreign policy approach, by implementing it, the blowback has been that the effects of the sanctions that they wanted the Russian people to suffer, their citizens themselves are suffering. Jim, let me ask you this. I felt like this. <clears throat> In, in looking from the outside in, I can see an unthinkable 
uh, economic collapse coming to, you know, starting with Germany and, and, and the UK, but definitely coming to the EU. When I look at Sri Lanka and people are like, could that happen in, um, you know, could like total disarray, chaos and pandemonium happen in, in Europe? And I think I would think far worse because if you've got people used to uh, accustomed to a high standard of living, they got further to fall. So when they're accustomed to a high standard of living and that goes down to zilcho, they are not going to be happy. I suspect the time will come when the people in these countries will cry out for some type of legal action to be taken against those people who have who have deindustrialized their continent and wiped out their country. Jim. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's true that, you know. Uh, the possibilities for radical and revolutionary action are, are when working classes, which have gotten some power and some economic power and have gotten used to some standard, have that taken away from them. And that's that's a good point. And I think that's true. And what we're you know, this is a situation and it goes to a lot. You know, it's happened in in in, uh, in Holland and Italy and the farmer strikes. And it started with the yellow vests, you know. And what you have, what you're seeing is, you know, you do have these global elites and these transnational elites and these European wide elites that are making the policy decisions that are for the greater good. And we're going to save the planet. And we're going to and some of the issues are really they're real issues. But this and it requires international planning to deal with some of these things. And it requires changing some, uh, you know, traditional methods. But if you don't do that, if you do that as, oh, here is the word of the experts from on high, now we're going to change everything, and we're going to do it in a way that makes sure that the, 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 the profit takers and the capitalists and the owners of capital keep their, their profits continuing to increase, but you're going to have to pay more for your gas and for your truck or for your, or, or for your tractor, and you're going to have to start using, you know, you can't use regular fertilizers anymore in your farm, you have to sell your farm to BlackRock. That's baloney, you know, that's not environmentalism. That's reactionary capitalist globalist environmentalism, which is the opposite of any kind of seriously planned human centered uh, ecological socialism, you know, which which we need. But uh, so what you have is this situation. Then when the people revolt and they say, we're not going to listen to this crap. And, you know, you, you, you want to make us pay for everything. You want me to lose my farm and sell it to BlackRock. You want me not to be able to travel anywhere. You know, while you get on your private jet, this is the kind of thing that that that's happening in the world. And it's extremely dangerous because it's going to open up, be, be, you know, all of the, the it's going to open up. the. It is opening up. It has opened up the uh, space for right wing uh, demagogues. But it's just an unknown territory. But the people are rebelling against having big schemes imposed on them that they're the ones that are going to have to pay for in their on the ground, nitty gritty social lives, while the elite still flies around to Davos and uh, uh, G20 meetings and G7 meetings. And as we get out, it happened in Italy when the neoliberal policies in Italy hit their economy and Italians couldn't retire at the early ages. I think they were retiring at like 55 in, uh, in Italy. It happened in Greece about 10 years ago when the neoliberal policies hit, hit the Greek government. It happened in Germany. Neoliberal policies hit Germany. They couldn't retire at the ages that they wanted to. Their, their August off vacation but got cut short. It's, it's, it's been slowly creeping into their realities, and now it's blowing up 
in their faces. Steve Poikinen and Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Really, really appreciate it. And as always, enjoy your weekend. We look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece. As first series of January 6th hearings ends, Watchdog says Trump must be prosecuted. The House January 6th committee's first series of public hearings came to a close last night, and uh, they provided evidence that former President Trump gave a green light to the right-wing mob that attacked the Capitol. What do these hearings really mean? And all of this while Mike Pence is seeking to distance himself from, from Trump as he considers a 2024 presidential run. For insight into this, let's turn to our second panel. We're joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. We're also joined by a professor of political science at Howard University, former chair of that department, author of the newly released $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy, Dr. Clarence Lusane. As always, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. So uh, let me start with you, Dr. Lusane. Your thoughts on these hearings, not so much in terms of their content, but are they resonating with the public or are the divisions within our politics such that people are so entrenched in their camps that the Democrats who are leading the committee are basically preaching to the converted? So uh, this is uh, somewhat of a complex uh, question. Great question, though, uh, because it's pretty clear that the MAGA crowd is not budging at all. If four years of Donald Trump's behavior hadn't moved them on on anything, they're not moving on this. But what the data is showing is that among independents, who are now about a third of the voters, um, there actually has been a shift. Uh, there are more people watching. And the question is going to be, will any of this push the Department of Justice to actually go after the organizers of the insurrection, not just the people who went into the Capitol, but the folks who uh, conceived it and plotted it uh, and carried it out uh, all the way up to uh, Donald Trump. And I think the, the evidence has been overwhelming. Now, there's not been a single Democrat, um, mostly, I guess, who have testified. This has been uh, not only Republicans, but MAGA-type Republicans. And so I think that's just been devastating. Uh, and you can see it in the response to Trump, who uh, swears he doesn't watch it, but he watches it obsessively and, and writes about it all, like every other hour. Uh, so I think it is having an impact. Uh, Dr. Campbell, same question to you and, and to uh, Dr. Lusane's point. 
and people need to understand, the committee cannot charge anybody with anything. All the committee can do is ask the Department of Justice to file charges or the Department of Justice can make that decision on their own. Dr. Colin Campbell. We know that we live in a very politically divided climate right now. And, of course, that results in the attention that's being given to these hearings. A number of Democrats are watching them. They're paying attention because there's new information that comes out from these hearings. Just like in Thursday night's hearing this week, we learned about some of the intensity that Secret Service members felt in such a way that they were calling family members in case they didn't make it home that night, that the former vice president uh, was supposed to be evacuated from Capitol Hill twice. So when people are looking at just the way that they believe that the former president violated the Constitution and fomented violence on Capitol Hill, they want to see him pay a penalty for that. They want to see members of his inner circle uh, reach um, some kind of and face some type of comeuppance for their actions on Capitol Hill. But of course, Republicans in this day of, uh, like I said, uh, a digital space in this day and age where confirmation bias is high, you have a number of Republicans who say they are not watching these hearings. And it's split basically down party lines with a majority of Democrats watching them with a very small percentage of Republicans watching these hearings. Those who watch the hearings largely uh, stand by the current president and approve of what he's doing. Those not watching the hearings and say they're a waste of time, a lot of them disapprove of of President Biden. And so I think what is underlying all of these hearings, most of all, is the desire for there to be some type of prosecution, the desire for someone to be punished for the atrocities that happened on Capitol Hill. And for many, Merrick Garland is moving too slowly. Those who understand law, the legal process, and the type of case that Garland would have to build up, understand the reason why he's being so methodical and so deliberate before he brings charges, because it could be seen as a political ploy if he was too haphazard and too hasty with the charges he was bringing. So as we see these hearings progress, I believe this one was the last one for a while. Hearings will resume sometime in September. Those who are looking at these hearings are saying, all right, what are we going to do with this information? Could this happen again? And those who did violate the law, those who broke the law, those who desecrated the the halls of of Capitol Hill, all of these people, including those in Trump's inner circle, including the former president himself, need to be brought to some type of justice. Um, let me, you know, throw, a, a, I guess, a, a different um, angle, a, a Dr. A Dr. Lusain, because, you know, as you know, I'm an independent. And here are my thoughts, my thoughts. My thoughts is it comes across to me as an interparty squabble. It comes across to me as like if you're a diehard Democrat, man, you're like, boy, go get him. If you're a Republican, you're like, it's all a fraud. We're still working on Stop the Steal. Right. And I look at it and I'm like. Well, let's see, Nixon, Reagan, Iran-Contra affair. There is no way that an ex-president will ever be charged with a crime because the presidents who are in office now are probably committing crimes of some sort that they don't want to get charged with. So I look at it and I'm like, you know, if Joe Biden, let me put it like this. It seems like this is something that says, let's help ourselves in November. And I'm like, 
if you kept one of your campaign promises, just pass some legislation, pass anything, do anything other than war and increase the military industrial complex, that would help. But instead, it seems like an intra-party squabble and a ploy uh, to me on the outside. And I have no I would put an unlimited amount of money down that Donald Trump or anybody other than maybe some plumber from Sheboygan will be charged with anything. Some guy at the bottom who's a nobody who wandered in that day, they'll charge him. But anybody with any authority, authority, forget it. I don't think that's happening. And anyway, that's a lot of a, a, a lot of stuff. I'll throw it at you, Dr. Lusane. OK, so I think that uh, these hearings go beyond just sort of. Democrat versus Republican, although it's, it's clearly uh, driven by what uh, Trump did. But this was a white nationalist rebellion and insurrection. And although I think they have not focused on that as much as I would have if I was running the hearings, uh, that's where there also has to be some accountability. So it isn't uh, uh, just limiting it to the people who went into the Capitol, but at least two other circles one is the plot and the clear uh, coordination that happened by an alliance, a formal alliance between the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and then you throw in the Three Percenters and some of the other groups. Uh, that requires uh, uh, some accountability uh, and responsibility being uh, on that end of it. And then I think on the uh, Trump side of it, so there's this narrative that Trump uh, called the mob, uh, the mob got riled up, and he threw a match and sort of lit the fire, and then they went in. Uh, I would de- deviate from that because I think it's more insidious. I, there was no point in bringing a cop crowd to Washington, D.C., from Trump's perspective, unless they stopped the count. And they couldn't do that unless they went into the Capitol. And so I think you have to dig deeper into the role that the administration, the Trump administration played directly in preparation for people to go into the Capitol. So you get the Proud Boys and those who are willing to do it, but they can't do it successfully unless there's a mob behind them. And so I think that's the the, uh, picture that the uh, hearing has to really kind of draw out. And then from the Department of Justice, they've got to go after Giuliani, they've got to go after those lawyers. They've got to go after Steve Bannon. They got to go after that whole crowd. And I think there are clear uh, hesitations about going after a former president. And you know there are certainly consequences, but in this instance, there are consequences of not going after the president. And the difference between Nixon and Trump is that when Nixon was out of office. That was pretty much it. Trump hasn't went anywhere, and he absolutely is determined to come back into office. He will probably try to get rid of the 22nd Amendment. Uh, that's the amendment that puts a limit on uh, presidential terms. And as Axios uh, reported, uh, they're plotting an authoritarian framing of the entire uh, administration virtually as soon as they walk into the door. So there's an urgent need for uh, Mayor Garland uh, to go after Trump. And even if he's not necessarily indicted and convicted, there can be enough uh, pressure that basically takes him out of the political process. 
and and two things quickly. One, uh, to to your logic, uh, Dr. Lusain, it makes sense to me because Steve Bannon early on in the campaign talked about their mission was the deconstruction of the administrative state. And that attempted coup was was that uh, in, in physical practice. And the other thing you talk about Trump having brought them here to do that, well, that then explains why he was so reluctant to tell them to go home. Look, he he sent out the invitations. He bought the dinner, bought the drinks, had everybody in his yard. You can't go out there in the middle of the barbecue and tell everybody to go home. You got to serve them folks some ribs. So <laughs> go ahead, uh, Dr. Campbell, let me add one more thing to this. Let's just say for the sake of argument, I don't think it would happen, that you somehow prohibit Donald Trump from winning. You're going to stick Kamala Harris out there? She's going to get stumped by DeSantis? You ain't going to be no better if you don't do what I said. If the Biden team doesn't pass some legislation that they promised, they promised a million things and has has made effort to, well, this is what they've done. They've said, we can't do anything because cinema and mansion, so they got an excuse. The people aren't going to want to hear it. So if you use whatever to eliminate one of your uh, opponents, which is Trump, you still got other opponents, you have to do something yourself to make people want to vote for you. Vote for you, or you're just going to lose to another Republican. Could be worse. I mean, you may get a competent guy who's doing that as opposed to an incompetent one. You might be even in, in even worse shape. Anyway, Dr. Campbell. That's what I could believe a lot of people uh, who are fearful of DeSantis running in the future are worried about. Somebody who would be even a more capable uh partisan than Trump has been. But what I'm looking at here is the dance that Democrats really need to be uh, a lot more effective at, and that is running a, an effective offense at the same time they're running an effective defense. And right now, they don't seem to be doing either very well. You see, when it comes to, for example, Trump uh, and trying to prevent him uh, using, say, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, right, with trying to prevent him from running again. That's something that they are working behind the scenes and trying to extemporize and to get that accomplished. But at the same time, they're losing a lot of Americans on what is not happening and the pain that Americans are feeling. So as though they may prevent Trump from running, which I believe is one of the ultimate goals, if not to see him prosecuted to some degree, they have to build their message up and provide the needs of what American people are actually looking for if they want to have a chance in the next election. And right now it's not looking very good with low approval ratings for President Biden and just as low approval ratings for Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, there's very little confidence that that Harris would be an effective candidate going forward, say President Biden were to not run again or something, uh, God forbid, befall him unexpectedly. There are not a lot of people who have confidence in Kamala Harris. And so they're looking at other Democrats, but there just doesn't seem to be a, a deep pool of people who might have uh, that leadership ability to secure the confidence of the American people uh, for an election. And I think that's what Democrats are suffering from right now. How do we prevent 
some of the extremists from corroding further the democratic process or the democratic system in the country. Um, a lot of them connected to Donald Trump. You have the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and so on and so forth. And at the same time, we're running an effective campaign to meet the needs of what American people really want. And of course, a lot of that translates to the economy. How much are they paying for things? How much are, are damage is being done to their accounts? And right now, things are, are not looking good for the average American. Dr. Lusain, you have a piece, uh, I think it was published on the 20th of this month in the Washington Post, how D.C. could decide the next presidential election. Washington's lack of representation reveals several cracks in American democracy. You write, former President Trump in 2021 tried to orchestrate a situation in which disputes about the 2020 election would send the decision to the House, where Republicans held a 26-24 state majority at the time. While the move has been appropriately criticized as an effort to steal the election, it exposes several ways in which the current U.S. system of electing or selecting a president fails the democracy test. Dr. Lusain. Yeah, so uh, picking up on uh, what Dr. Uh, Campbell said, so uh, there is a serious danger of the extremists, which is essentially what the Republican Party has become, uh, coming back into power, not only in Congress, but we know also that they have a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court. Uh, and if they get the White House, uh, we can see where all that goes. But even if none of that happens, uh, the, the level of democratic loopholes that exist will continue to be exploited, one of which being the Electoral College overall, where we've seen, of course, uh, president, people become presidents who did not win the popular vote twice in the 21st century alone. Uh, what I was trying to point out in that article is that one of these arenas of, of democratic uh, lack of democracy is the treatment of Washington, D.C. So Donald Trump corruptly, of course, tried to send the election to the House of Representatives because he was aware that the Republicans had a uh, state majority, 26 states and 24 states. Uh, and so that should be called out for its corruption. But there, because of the, the Electoral College, uh, there is a possibility of the vote going to uh, the House of Representatives because there's a tie, for example. Uh, if there's a 269 to 269 tie, and that's possible, then it will go to the House of Representatives. Or if there's a third candidate that pulls enough electoral votes that no one gets 270, it goes to the House of Representatives. Under that scenario, D.C. has no vote. And so that, along with the Electoral College, along with the filibuster, you know, so forth, there's a broad array of items that should be part of a democracy agenda that the Democrats should have in addition to a people's agenda that focuses on pocketbook issues, everything from uh, raising the minimum wage to fair wages to union rights. But there also needs to be a democracy agenda that addresses the undemocratic elements that already exist, but also moves further and stops the extremists from uh, coming into power. Does this democracy agenda require a constitutional convention? Uh, 
And if it requires a constitutional convention, don't we run the risk of opening up the Constitution to some things that could wind up being even more anti-democratic? Probably at this point, it's more of a piecemeal type of approach. Uh, I don't see one. I'm extremely sensitive to your point about a constitutional convention where the Republicans control most of the states. Uh, That would be, you know, disaster upon disaster. Mm -hmm. But uh, we can identify, you know, what are the elements that need to be changed? And that is the mid and long term agenda uh, that should be there by progressives. Uh, because if we don't, then we will continue to have uh, these problems and the far right will exploit these holes in the in the democracy. Dr. Campbell. Yeah, I think that there's some states and those uh, political pundits out there that want to see something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact be put into place. And there have been several states that have Put that into effect. And this is where you have the popular vote and all the votes and all the electors are awarded um, based on the popular vote. And so this would not require uh, a constitutional amendment. It would really require governors from states to get on board and to put the NPVIC into effect. This would ensure that the, that when a candidate wins the popular vote, such as a general presidency, that the popular vote winner, the electors that sign on to this compact would award their electors automatically to that end, that the popular, the winner of the popular vote would receive all the electors. And again, this is something that's been around for several years. I believe about 10 states at least have signed on to it. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for those who believe that this is the solution to try to circumvent some of the challenges that are happening with the electoral college, the loss of the popular vote, and those who are just strategically trying to win the electoral college, but not necessarily the general will or the majority of what or who the people want as their president. Interesting article, but I got a little different take on it. There's an article and it's a conservative, the American Spectator. How did Democrats become so out of touch with the American people? Now, if you read the article, they use a lot of the traditional right wing talking points and say, you know, they're not doing what we want them to do. So they're out of touch with the American people. There's, you know, there's a there's a mixed bag in this article, shall we say. But here's my point. Here's what I would say. I don't think it's they're really out of touch um, with the American people. If you look at Joe Biden's promises, you know, he, I'm, student loans, uh, climate change, a public option, $15 minimum wage. When I saw those things, I'm like, well, you know, he's kind free of college. free college. He said free community college, which will help a lot of people of color and, and people in the lower uh, economic realms. I looked at it and I said, OK. I am not a big Joe Biden fan, but he kind of has an idea what people want. But there's a difference between saying, I know what you want and I'm going to do absolutely anything to deliver on it. So I don't agree with this article that the Democrats are totally out of touch with the American people. The problem is it's like I know what you want and I'm going to promise it to you. I just ain't going to do nothing to make sure you get it. Start with you, Dr. Lusane. Yeah, you got to fight for these issues. And. That's what I think uh, is the feeling. And when you look at the low poll numbers and you look behind those numbers, that's exactly what people are saying. So you can't talk about voting rights and then you don't do anything about it or about police reform. You don't do anything about it. 
I think there's still a very strong streak of uh, old school in, uh, institutionalism uh, that's there in the Biden administration. And that's not going to work in 2022. Uh, you have to be on the front lines. You have to bring pressure. You have to use every medium available to make it an unavoidable issue so that voting rights does not get basically kicked to the curve or criminal justice reform or any of these issues. And there still has to be pressure on people like Manchin and Cinema, uh, so that there is a sense of, you know, why these uh, issues are being uh, blocked. And Dr. Campbell, coming to you and to add to what Garland said, as the Democrats, when you have or when you have political action committees that are tied to APAC, that are injecting themselves into uh, political races, when you have uh, the the team blue, which is run by Hakeem Jeffries out of New York, which with their sole purpose is to see to it that progressive Democrats don't replace the seats held by so-called moderate Democrats. That's not a matter of being out of touch. That's a matter of understanding the dynamics very clearly and being sure that you stack the deck so that you get it so that you get it the way you want it. That's where the intra-party fighting looks unattractive to a lot of voters, where you have this strategic type of displacement or at least prevention from some candidates and and some candidates replacing other candidates out there. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about Democrats trying to lead an effective offensive as well as as the defense and trying to deliver for the American people. We know, and a lot of people who follow politics daily or weekly know that there, it's very nuanced. Politics makes strange bedfellows. There are different layers. There's a lot of uh, glad handing and a lot of, uh, out of, a lot of overtures that need to be made in order for the sausage to be made, so to speak. But when you're a voter, an average voter, and you're trying to just survive day to day, a lot of that doesn't matter. They just want results. And right now, they're not seeing the results that they would like to see coming from Democrats. And for Biden to uh, to have these challenges is understandable. We're living in a partisan divide, even with his, within his own party. There are he's getting pushback and not the full cooperation from everyone. But at the same time, what are they telling the American people, or how are they showing the American people that they are really fighting for those issues, even though they might be coming up short? Are the are the optics that Democrats are, are making? Are they? showing the American people that they're fighting for those pocketbook issues, those wallet issues, or are they fighting for funding uh, a war overseas that is really disconnected from a large majority of Americans? What are they really demonstrating to the public? What are they, put, what are they highlighting? What's uh, the most salient in voters' minds when they think about the Biden administration? Is it their failures or their wins? And I would say that it's more the former right now than the latter. We have just about a minute left. Uh, Dr. Lusain, we talked, we, t- we touched on jo- on uh, Mike Pence. And do you see Mike Pence now flirting with running for president as we're waiting to see what Donald Trump is going to do? Does that demonstrate an intra-party struggle or is Mike Pence really not a serious contender? So I think that there will be a number of challengers, even if Donald Trump jumps in. 
I think he's uh, tainted, and I think that the ambition of DeSantis and some of the others is, I don't see that waiting another five years. And so uh, Pence has this illusion, at least to me, that somehow they're going to forget that the hang my pinch theme was, you know, pretty rampant. Right. Uh, so I don't see where Mike Pence goes with any of this. Okay. Uh, and I don't think he can walk that line between trying to like not be no. a Trump guy, but you know, that, that's, that's, that's not who work. he is. He's not that clever. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Colin Campbell, Dr. Clarence Lusain, gentlemen, both. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your weekends. We look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 